Hello and welcome to episode 18 of Cultural Capital, our first for 2017. I'm from Andy Hazel. I'm Anders Furs. And our co-host Eloise Ross will be joining us later, reporting from Sundance Film Festival. This episode will be going deep into two films that explore guilt, shame, repression and oppression in small communities and both the work of visionary directors and both recently showered with Oscar nominations. Manchester by the Sea we'll look at later, but first, Barry Jenkins at Moonlight. What happened? Huh? What happened, Chiron? Why you didn't come home like you're supposed to? Huh? And who is you? Nobody. I found him yesterday. Found him in a hole on 15. Yeah, that one. Some boys chased him in the cut. He scared more than anything. He wouldn't tell me where he lived till this morning. Well, thanks for seeing to him. He usually can take care of himself. He good that way, but... Uh, Moonlight tells the story of one man, Chiron, at three stages of his life as he grows up a gay African-American in Florida. Told in three chapters, titled Little, Chiron and Black, director Barry Jenkins examines Chiron's growth as, as his relationships to his family, friends, and his honesty to himself shifts over time. Played variously by Alex Hibbert, then Ashton Sanders, and finally Trevante Rhodes, Chiron shifts from being a shy, withdrawn child with an emotionally abusive mother into an adult who is hardened by the secrets that he's held. Moonlight is an adaptation of Terrell Alvin McCraney's unproduced play in Moonlight Black Boys Look Blue and has drawn a lot of attention due to James Laxton's cinematography, Nicholas Brattel's score and its tight, focused, emotionally powerful screenplay. But more than anything, Moonlight has dominated award season conversation for its uniformly strong performances. Anders, did you fall for Moonlight? I did fall for Moonlight, I think, and I think it's very easy to. It's a very sort of beguiling film. I went into it. Um, a little bit apprehensive, and I think this probably says more about me than the film, but I was sort of worried, is this just, is this going to be your standard Oscar-baiting liberal um, politics, you know, says all the right things, does all the right things. I read a Brett Easton Ellis piece that was scathing of it, and I was sort of thinking, oh, is this going to, uh, am I going to agree with his idea that this, there's nothing to this film beyond a sort of important story? Um, but there's so much more to this film. It's really beautifully made there's a lot of artistry in the filmmaking that i think sort of really helps accentuate it's quite um you know strong emotional core of this this main guy and following him as he sort of uh, deals with his um his his masculinity and the idea of uh his sort of the oppression that he faces and that he sort of self-imposes um, in terms of his identity. Um, I think it's really, really well filmed. So in that regard, I'm all for Barry Jenkins uh, getting showered in praise um, and award nominations because I think it's, 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 you know, so many of these Oscar bait films uh, would work work better as stories um you know it's like what differentiates a film from you know just anything else and i think the key thing here is that the filmmaking technique really is really strong would you agree with that definitely yeah i think um he's got a really interesting eye and i think so much focus got given to textures of skin of the florida community in which he's growing up there's a lot of gestures uh, a lot mm. of scenes that linger on faces. He doesn't seem mm. to be that interested in the overall story. He's more putting uh, vignettes together, I feel, like these scenes that are really key of part of growing up and then they're kind of narratively put together and then the themes emerge 
through their the way they, yeah. they kind of tessellate. What I found really exciting about it was how sort of the sensuality and the sexiness of, of these men is is not downplayed, you know. So it was totally cool to see him like as a kid uh, when he's getting his swimming lessons and like he can sort of tell this there's this sort of weird awakening of sexuality when he's like swimming and with this like hunky guy who's like his role model mm. his sort of mentor unofficial mentor I guess you can see that the camera the camera was really strongly identifying with his point of view I think in, in those scenes and that was really cool I loved the slow-mo head-on shots too of all these characters in his life yes, and how they yeah. sort of respond to him. It's really gentle, but really, really tenderly shot. Mm, definitely, yeah. And that, that relationship early on with Mahershala Ali's character, yeah. who, um, I mean, there's yeah. so, so much complexity to it. I feel like everybody, we get to know them quite well. Yeah. Even in the clip that we played earlier, where which was between Mahershala Ali's uh, character, Juan, and um, Sharon's mother, Paula, played by Naomi Harris, you can hear the, the introduction of these two characters or the first time that we see Naomi Harris's Paula we we see the, the the pressures that she's under and everybody's under their own pressures I mean everyone's slightly hypocritical everybody's trying to do the right thing in a really difficult yeah. situation and they talk about that too I want to give a shout out to the sort of third sequence where there's this amazing almost real time scene set in the diner oh, where, God. where they sort of reunite yes after yeah however many years, I thought that was just exceptionally well mm. executed. The sort of the sexual tension there was, it was really palpable. And so you've got, so you have the sexual tension, but then you've also got this character who's maybe wanting to, you know, he recognises that he's sort of in this self-imposed prison of his own making and he wants to break free and he's making these sort of tentative moves to break free by going to reunite with uh, the guy he uh, had Kevin. a fling with as a teenager. Yeah, Kevin, his best friend. Kevin, yeah, his best friend Kevin. It's just so, on the one hand, you've got this like kind of sexiness under the, you know, the sexual tension, but then you've also got the tension of this guy self-actualizing in a weird mm, way. It's yeah. just like it's a powerhouse combination of those two things. Yeah, it's brilliant. And I think it's really interesting it's to compare that to the way almost every other filmmaker probably would have gone a documentary realistic route. Mm. But here we get like this real artistry, like this, this beautiful colours, there's a lot of just love and respect given to all the characters. I was reminded, perhaps predictably, um, of uh, Brief Encounter, which oh, is yeah, like yeah. You know, the, the equivalent of a, a queer film made in, say, 1940s England, which, where it has to be transposed to a, an adulterous affair, which is you know, the forbidden love of that society at that time. Whereas now it's... Um, because in both those films you have these people who want, who desperately have this desire for each other, um, but then there's the pressures of society are kind of forcing him to play to certain roles. And it's fascinating to see that move from the second chapter, Chiron, to the third chapter, Black, where we introduced to Trevante Rhodes and he's this hulking, muscular, ripped yeah, yeah. guy who yeah. last saw as being this kind of hunchbacked adolescent who was struggling it, you know, exactly. to survive bullying and all these other sorts of forces. So to see the way that he's responded to those forces that society's pushed onto him. Yeah, it's quite amazing, isn't it? Because by, by alighting all of that in between time, by just contrasting, you know, one version of his character to another, I think he really, really accentuates just how powerful those 
uh, force, those social forces are, mm. because it's a shock to the audience member. Yes. Do you yeah. go and then it's it's sort of like a classic Brechtian um, alienation technique where you where you're suddenly aware of the fact this is a film and you're aware, you're suddenly realizing thing, you know the things you're suddenly realizing that you're supposed to be thinking about why um, this has happened I guess mm. the the combination of that with like this cool queer sexy tense romance you know romance all of that as well it's just like i mean it's kind of, it's kind of amazing mm. really yeah 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 um a film i saw around the same time as i saw that was um connor horgan's film uh, documentary the queen of ireland about panty bliss and the man who plays this drag queen oh this kind of stand-up activist um this guy rory o'neill who spearheaded the marriage equality law shift in in ireland and the whole documentary is about the rights of you know being uh, gay in a really really oppressive environment but he was mainly famous for this one viral video that went out i'm not sure if you saw it about where it was turned into a pop song by the pet shop boys as well it's all just it's just basically about explaining what it's like to be a gay guy in dublin and he makes all these pressures that we see in moonlight just real he basically just explains situations about you know having to check yourself as you're walking down the street to make sure you're not being too you know too gay mm, or too mm. you know so and so it's it's just interesting to see that in a different environment and that's got a really positive ending whereas the you know, it's hard to spoil Moonlight because it doesn't really have any of these, you know, explosive Oscar moments of snot running down faces and people making yeah, tears totally. for reunions or, or anything like that, really. It's much more interested in, in just the, the evolution of these characters and looking, you know, at the, the layers underneath from the what you might see if, you, if, you've, if you're seeing an African-American guy, you might not, you know, know yeah. all these pressures that are going on. Um, and so Rory O'Neill's thing in Ireland, you know, is really different. I mean, but there's still a lot, of, you know, it's, you know, it's an incredibly religious country. But then they managed to manifest this amazing change, and so it was this. That's quite a, like an uplifting, optimistic side of it. Um, you know, it's a flip side, I suppose, to the story of people having to deal with the same pressures. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Cool. No, I, I yeah, big fan. I'm a big fan of this film, and I, yeah, I think it, it's it's powers sort of growing in terms of the more I think about it, the more affecting it it feels to me. These are people who are they've grown up in an impoverished environment. You've got the sexuality thing as well, and it's beautiful how within all this like crazy abrasive context, there's still these moments of beauty and there's still moments for these people that sort of life affirming moments within all of this, this maelstrom. And I'm thinking whenever they go to the beach, so whenever they like the beach is sort of presented as their, their escape from this crazy, mm. you know, like all of the rules and everything just gets left behind once you're at the beach in the world of moonlight. And I think that's, it's really, it's really nice. It's really cool to be able to see that, you know, despite all of these oppressive factors going, despite the crazy state of the world, you can still, find moments down by the beach mm. even if there's only three or four yeah. yeah and if you think about the beach a floridian beach in the 1980s you think miami vice or you think some sort of yeah, yeah. totally you know caucasian yeah. luxury yeah, 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 ex totally experience yeah it's um, so I, cool it's so good yeah and i loved it the way um it was so so different to the version of florida we saw in american honey which is much more you know shooting from the hip documentary style look at yeah. poverty in florida and then the way that that you know the, the characters in um, american honey escaped to think that they, you know, they're occupying the same space, but then it looks so different. And the, even though the pressures and the poverty um, and the difficulty of breaking out of that is, you know, very, very similar. Those social forces, the, the thing, comparing the different responses, I think, is really interesting and an illustration of how good 2016 was in cinema. Yeah, agreed. Comparing those two. Cool. Moonlight is in limited release around the country at the moment. Cultural Capital says, check it out. 
you could take one guy to an island with you and you knew you'd be safe because he was the best man. He was going to keep you happy. If it was between me and your father, who would you take? My daddy. I think you're wrong about that. Hello, this is Lee. What happened to my brother? So that's Lee Lee Chen, huh? I don't understand. Which part are you having trouble with? Well, I can't be his guardian. Well, your brother provided for your nephew's upkeep. I think the idea was that you would relocate. Relocate to where? Well, if you yeah. look, it was my impression that you'd spent a lot of time here. I sweetheart. I'm just a backup. Lee, nobody can appreciate what you've been through. And if you really feel you can't take this on, yeah, that's your right. Kenneth Lonigan's third film as a director stars Casey Affleck as Lee Chandler, a janitor prone to bar fights and melancholy. When his brother dies, Lee returns to his hometown, the titular Manchester, New Hampshire, and discovers that he has been named the guardian of his brother's teenage son. The film charts the interactions between uncle and nephew as each comes to terms with their grief. Although come to terms might be putting it a bit too strongly, refreshingly the emotional didacticism of your standard American movie is absent here. Affleck's supporting cast includes Michelle Williams as his ex-wife and Kyle Chandler who appears in flashback as his dead brother. As the film flashes backwards and forwards in time, we gain a complete portrait of a couple of key tragedies besieging one working class family, and we come to realise just why this main character left his hometown for good. Andy, what mm. did you think? Um, I thought this was an amazing film. I guess my expectations were very high because I was a huge fan of You Can Count On Me and uh, Margaret, uh, Kenneth Lonergan's mm. two previous films. Uh, the word came out first in Sundance last January, and then it was, of course, we've only just got to see it in Australia now. It was like a good, you know, year's worth of hype building up to it, but I thought it was absolutely stunning. Almost all the focus seems to be on Affleck's performance, which I think is really, really, of course, it's incredible, and it's probably going to win the Oscar for him as well. The film, you know, the film is called Manchester by the Sea, and it's really interesting to look at the way Lonigan chooses to populate this town and to have their stories told and to look at the way that grief and trauma is never really owned it's always like a collective thing and so despite you know Affleck's problematic way of handling the difficult experiences we get to know him and we get to know the town through the relationship so you know any sort of traumatic event's going to fracture thousands of times and everyone's going to have their, their own versions of the story and it's him the difficulty of coming to terms that I found so um, so captivating with this Particularly the, also in a very similar way to Jenkins, I suppose, we don't really get an overall narrative with, which is running clean through the story. Often scenes seem to happen with, in an almost tangential relationship to the story, that, the narrative that you just explained. But instead, you know, if being, that being the sort of thing that people might you know, question as to why, why do you need certain stories in there about you know, this, the hockey team or about you know, um, Lucas Hedges' as friends or the garage band, all that sort of stuff, it all kind of all comes together to give you this the illustration yeah. so that by the time you get into the, the towards the end of the film we know these characters so well through the interactions with other people that you don't need them to say words you can have a scene just with through expressions basically which i think is a phenomenal achievement for any director yeah no mm. i agree i loved i mean i was sort of i came into this expecting you know from what i'd seen online on twitter and whatever everyone going on about how depressing this film is and i sort of wasn't expecting the humor in there there's a lot of humor yes, in this yeah, film yeah. it's funny you know sometimes it's it's sort of like the awkward humor of what the way we interact after you know traumatic experiences or when we're dealing with grief with loss it's often it is often in bizarre unaccountable ways we can all sort of think i think from from real life experience 
at funerals and, and wakes and whatnot, it's never, no one reacts by the book and it can often be awkward and f- even funny. Yeah. And yeah. I think Lonigan gets that. And so there is this weird, there's this humour, I mean, yeah, with the kid, uh, his teenage son, you know, his dad's died and yet he's still, he's like playing in this like quiet, hilariously well they're not bad but they're a stereotypically teenage band I guess with all this drama of the drummer the drummer's not keeping up with time and like that's on the time that's quite funny and he's juggling two girls two girlfriends all of that kind of stuff yeah it's it's he's not afraid of the awkwardness mm, you know yeah. like there's this one scene where so basically his father's died and there because it's the middle of winter here they can't bury him until the snow falls out or something yeah, so they have right, to like yeah. store him in ice storage for a couple of months and in the meantime and um the teenage son he like goes to his freezer at home opens it and gets stuck on the freezer because they're opening and closing the door and then like these frozen chickens like fall to the floor I mean, he's having a moment. He's having this, like, awful, weird realisation that his father's dead, but it's also kind of awkward and funny at yes, the same time. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I really found that really interesting and intriguing. It is, yeah. Physical comedy isn't something you'd expect to see. Yeah, But, yeah, that's yeah, totally true. Um, and, and I did dig how there is no real resolution. There's no, like, oh, we've all learned from this, let's all move mm. on. It's very yeah. much like these people are trying to do the best that they can, they're human beings. They've been dealing with a lot. Cut these people some slack. Lonigan cuts his characters a lot of slack. And mm. I think that's quite refreshing. Yeah. He never feels like he's pushing for anything or there's, a, no. there's, there's no, no, no gene to exploit. Also, I really, really appreciated the way that there was a lot of backstory was withheld. Like, we don't really know why... Um, Lee is so averse to going to Manchester by the sea, you know, or go, you know, because he's living in Quincy at the beginning and outskirts of Boston and not being very good. Jan- well, she's quite a good janitor, but he's not. He's struggling to deal with personal relationships, yes, and friendships, bar fights and whatnot. Yeah, but yeah, and general rudeness. <laughs> but we don't. A lot of a lot of people, um, particularly in uh, you know indie filmmaking, they want to withhold the backstory until the final third, so then you can have a big denouement and you, you know people can have all these tear-inducing um, revelations. Mm. But we kind of learn things almost as casu- casually as any anything else happens. Like, you know, the, the main traumatic event is... is, is a lot so of attention just is... dropped in there, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it's dropped in there. Yeah. There's, there's, as much attention is given to that as there is to a, the garage band. Yeah, in yeah, a way. yeah. So it's totally. Just, it's this beautiful thing where you're kind of learning and gra- it's all very, very gradual. And it's a really difficult, risky move, I feel. Yeah. Um, I mean, there was some of that in, in the, f- the previous films. You can count on me and in Margaret as well. There was a lot of, like you were saying, a lot of generosity and faith and respect mm. given to the characters. Mm. and just letting them learn things or not learning things in their own time. Well, this is a, this is a slight tangent, but speaking about generous films, um, the film critic James Durant got me last year onto the film um, uh, Henry Gamble's Birthday Party. It's this great American indie, and it's a satire about evangelicals and this kid whose uh, gr- who's dad's a pastor and he's dealing with um, his queer sexuality. It's just, I mean, it's about this super conservative family, but it's really generous towards its characters. Like, it's satirising their their conservatism without dehumanising them, mm, I guess. And I, yeah. I just really, I, I think that's in, in the current environment, that's kind of a rare thing. Anyway, Lonigan's film made me think of that. Yeah. Um, I mean, Lonigan's not, I don't think he's satirising those people, but it's, it's still got that same sort of generosity of spirit towards them. Yeah, know? definitely. Like in Matthew yeah. Broderick's character, for example. Oh, like, yeah, totally. <laughs> I loved Matthew, Matthew Broderick. 
Brodrick popped up. I didn't realise, but this is a running thing in all of Lonergan's films. He cameos. And so when he appeared, I was just like, whoa, what are you doing here? But he he lent, he was very, he played that role very well, actually. I think yeah, it's perfectly Yeah, it was suited. fantastic. But like, you know, the, a lot of other people would have just made that person into being a bad, negative, yeah. influenced character. But like, you know. Yeah, 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 exactly. He's, yeah. yeah you yeah, can yeah. really see where he's coming he's from. Strong. Everybody's trying to support everybody yeah. and help. There's no baddies. You know, it's, no. So yeah, it's beautiful. Um, yeah, yeah, no, it's it's good. So yeah, I recommend it. I but also, yeah, for me, for me, it hit me kind of more a few days after seeing it, yeah, as okay. well, because I was like, well, yeah, I mean, it's kind of long, but then you know, it's not really. It could have gone on for much longer. It could have been a series almost. I feel. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. Cool. Definitely recommended. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so now we're going to cut from Melbourne to New York where Eloise is going to let us know all about her last week in Sundance, which took in a lot of films and uh, Women's March and uh, a lot of snow. It was a really weird, kind of strange, surreal festival experience, Andy. I um, was at Sundance last year as well in 2016. It was my first. So this year I feel like I have some comparison and I got there arrived on the 19th of January and the next day was the inauguration and it was just such a strange heavy weight that we began the festival with and so it was just a really odd thing but the following day was the women's march I had to skip you know a really kind of big film to go to it but I felt like I I needed to go and experience that given that they were the first you know sort of two main days of the festival it starts on the 19th but there's only you know one one film slot in the evening that was yeah Mm -hmm. a very jarring entry into Sundance this year but some of the films I saw you know resonated with with what's going on with American politics right now like the film that I saw on the 19th was Whose Streets which is a documentary not so much about Ferguson itself but about the response both the police response to the shooting of Michael Brown and the then the response to the police's response. So in general, it's considered that the police response was unsatisfactory and then there was very famous protests going on in Ferguson that turned very violent and disrupted the city. Yeah, it's just this really interesting documentary. Look, it's not perfect and there are some elements of it that are not ideal, especially maybe not ideal for watching in a cinema itself because there's okay. a lot of guerrilla mobile phone video footage footage goes from being landscape to being portrait um which can be kind of jarring there are occasional inserts of people's tweets in here so it is very much you know this like of the people documentary which is actually a really important thing given that it was a protest that that originated with the people um i think it's really important that this film exists Uh, most of our um knowledge of that scenario and it went on for months came from the media and this is from uh, someone who was there i think and who you know kind of taking people's accounts from from actually being there anyway that one was the first film i saw so that was kind of you know a really heavy film to see i think you know on that there is another film that is that is really important a documentary called dolores by peter bratt mm-hmm. um, now i'm not familiar with what peter bratt has done before but this is a really solid documentary. It's about the life and the activism of Dolores Huerta, a woman who's now 86, who um, was a really big civil rights activist. And she 
was really supported union labor union laws in in the American South. It's really solid. It begins kind of with this really extraordinary rhythm. It has really excellent editing, music as well, fantastic archival footage of her and of other people like Gloria Steinem. Um, and so it's just this really accomplished, really pretty standard, but very, very enjoyable and also sad and very bitter um, film about the state of civil rights in the United States in the 1950s and 60s and by comparison now. Hi, I'm Jeremy Jasper, writer and director of Patty Cakes, uh, which will be premiering at 2017 Sundance Film Festival in the U.S. Dramatic Competition. Patty Cakes is about a 23-year-old woman named Patricia Dombrowski, who lives in uh, Blue Collar, New Jersey, and is obsessed with hip-hop music, and is actually a closet, uh, incredible rapper. Through the film, she kind of comes out as an MC and puts together this crew of misfits, and then they go on this epic adventure to become legitimate. So I saw Patty Cakes, and it was the last film I saw at the festival, and just the amount of energy in this film, I think, it was. I'm so happy that it was the, like my farewell to, to Sundance this year. The festival director, John Cooper, actually has said, it's been reported on, that Daniel McDonald is the best actor he's seen Come out of sun, either come out of Sundance or just in general um, since Jennifer Lawrence in 2010 when she was at Sundance with Winter's Bone. Whether or not you think Jennifer Lawrence is great or not, which, you know, she certainly um, was a rising star at that time, um, that's really high praise. So maybe that's a sign of, uh, you know, places that Danielle McDonald might go. Um, she's a 25-year-old Australian. And she's been in a few things before, but this is her first big breakout role. And it's just so great. It's so much fun. So she plays this 23-year-old in Jersey, in North Jersey, I think it is. And she is bored and she wants to be a rapper. She wants to be a rap star. She wants to have a record. Patricia Dombrowski is her name. And she is, you know, sort of a misfit in society. She's quite overweight and has this nickname Dumbo. She makes friends with this other group of misfits, which, I mean, I haven't seen every movie, but it seems like this most pure depiction of a group of, of misfits who are really beautiful on the inside, but just not recognized for that in public. Really nice as, you know, the underdog wins kind of story, but there's just a lot of, really great shit that happens along the way. It's so funny. Patricia Dombrowski is really funny in the way that she uh, reacts and speaks. The rapping is funny. You know, they have battles on the streets and the rapping is very funny. But also what makes this really funny is the editing. So it's really, really fast. And there's a lot of reaction shots that are, that are hilarious. So, so yeah. So this sold for, I believe, $10.5 million to um, Fox Searchlight Pictures. It's, it's just so much fun. It was definitely, you know, the, I think the, the talking success of, of the festival. There always is one. I think last year's was Manchester by the Sea and this year it's Patty Cakes. And I did see Mudbound and this really shocked me. I was not 
there's tiny little blurbs that you read when you when you decide what to see at Sundance and you might read it and then forget and I've just written down that I wanted to see this film and completely had had no idea what I was getting myself in for but Mudbound is this really not searing I don't want to say searing but just really honest I think and straightforward look at uh, rural Mississippi in the 1940s and so if I say that sentence to you you know what we're in for right this this movie is not a barrel of laughs so it start it actually does affect a greater impact on the audience I think whether it starts in Memphis maybe you know and it kind of seems like a really great fun everyone's partying and in in bars and there's a lot of energy there I suppose and then maybe the main character I want to say main character but basically this is a story this is a film told with like at least four or five main characters Um, and so at the beginning it, it sort of introduces a lot of characters via their own voiceover telling telling their perspectives and at first that's a little bit confusing and can can set you back but after a while you do sort of begin to understand who each character is it's just this incredible portrait of a very very difficult situation with some characters that you absolutely hate and some characters that you have a really hard time trying to understand and the way that it's presented edited filmed is just really incredible and it's a super important film very very hard to watch in you know thinking about what's going on in the world right now our human races approach to racism and fascism i think it's just a really amazing film sounds like an awards contender I think it might be an awards contender. And it's interesting because most awards contenders come at the, you know, the end of the year. But as we mentioned on this show already, Birth of a Nation was an awards contender up until it wasn't. And that screened at Sundance as well. And Manchester by the Sea screened at Sundance and is an an awards contender now. So I I don't actually know if it's been bought yet, but I do think that it's, Definitely one that is that is going to get a lot of coverage. Okay, so it's about um, a young woman who is uh, having to take care of her mother who is unable to take care of her daughter. And she meets a man who comes into town, played by me, who is in town in Columbus, Indiana, because his father has fallen into a coma. And so they uh, meet and um, get to know one another whilst... Uh, uh, getting to know the town of Columbus, Indiana, which is filled with uh, ar- modern architectural wonders. Is that good? <laughs> I really, really love this film called Columbus, which is filmed in Columbus, Indiana, and it's a film about relationships and loss and the responsibility of child to parent in a really complex way and it tries to understand how our surroundings, I suppose, and the the buildings and the landscape that we feel comfortable with um, assists us emotionally as we grow up and as we go through struggles. This is a film that's been getting a lot of high praise as well from Sundance. It's directed, written, edited and directed by Kogonada, who came to acclaim as a video essay artist 
He has a website. He is very well known to the, I think, the academic community and the cinephilia community. He's been commissioned to make video essays for places like um, the Criterion Collection websites and maybe also the Criterion Collection DVD releases. He's a guy who obviously has a really sharp awareness of timing, editing, and framing from from all of the time that he spends mixing up this footage and, and turning it into his own audiovisual essay. And you can definitely see that, I think, in Columbus, in the way that he goes from beat to beat, the way that he frames people in front of buildings and in landscapes. He's got a real eye for framing as well. I don't think this kind of approach is unique to video artists necessarily. It's just a, a very specific type of interest in how people look in terms of their surroundings, I think, and how and a really interesting understanding of how we, as the audience, sees things happening on the screen, which I think, you know, you could say that Cognata gets that from from really looking at and playing with all sorts of different films and formats in, in one particular video essay. I mean, you know, I could be generalizing here. This is just something that maybe a lot of people have a really good eye for. My name is David Lowry. I'm the writer and director of A Ghost Story. The film kind of just emerged from some primordial miasma in my brain while I was editing my last film. I just had this idea of a ghost movie in which the ghost is a, a guy in a bedsheet with two eyes cut out. And I just love the idea of taking that iconography and that image and playing it incredibly straight and very seriously. Because it's a very goofy image. It's breaking from the norm in terms of how we tell the story and the tools we use to tell it. So a ghost story is really, really good. Look, I didn't, I wasn't quite sure that I was going to love it. It's a, it's a film that is rather than being interested in character, although it is, I think in some ways, it's interested in the passage of time and it's interested in the way that maybe we relate to the universe and the way that we relate to space and the way that we relate to history and the way that we respond to certain events. Um, and I don't think that that's really saying anything very interesting, but I'm, I mean, I'm trying not to give things away, but there's this, there basically there's like a number of segments and each of them is concerned with the passage of time in different ways. And it's only 87 minutes, I think. And it, I mean, it doesn't feel short. It doesn't quite, it doesn't feel long. I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. Look, I think this is a fairly emotionally violent film, but the film itself doesn't really, it doesn't contain any violence. There's no violence in the music or the editing or the conversation necessarily, but it's just a really, really drawn out uh, study of how we relate to the universe, which I think is a really key thing right now. So is it actually a ghost story? <laughs> I was talking to someone at Sundance and they said they would like it to have been called a ghost's story. But I'm not quite sure that that, that that would work. That might seem a little bit too simple. It is a ghost story, I think, in a way. I have written um, on 4-3 film, I kind of wrote this up in a little uh, paragraph. I said... I think that maybe you should just say it's a, it's a film about a ghost who haunts an area of land for hundreds of years. And by the end of the film, his 
wearing a really dirty sheet. So, yeah, there is a ghost in the story. Call Me By Your Name, I think, is maybe my favourite film of the festival and is a lot of people's favourite film of the festival. It's, I think, it's, well, it's Luca Guadagnino. It's uh, adapted from a novel, and I can't remember the novelist's name, um, but it's adapted by James Ivory. And so once you put James Ivory in the mix, I think you're just like, you're going to get a great film, no matter what. Call Me By Your Name is a really in-depth story of two men coming to terms with their sexuality. And it's set in Italy and it's really beautiful. Everyone has a lot of money. And I think, I mean, Guadagnino is very interested in that kind of setting and that kind of, the, the approach to life that people have when they're very well off, I think. And he, he does, he continues with that here. Army Hammer plays someone who just kind of comes to this house for six weeks and to, to study, I think, and then leaves. And he, he has so many emotions that he has to display and he has so much vulnerability, but he's also this very tall, very good looking, very, very confident man, but you see his vulnerability anyway. And I really, I just fell for everyone in this film. And Michael Stuhlbarg is in it as well. He plays the father and he is not in it a whole lot, but he has this really incredible monologue at the end. And it's just so sensual and sensory and a beautiful that it's such an important film to see on a big screen. So hopefully we get it very soon in Australia or, you know, at least sometime this year. Hi, my name is Gillian Robespierre. I'm the co-writer and director of Landline, which is playing in the U.S. Dramatic Competition at Sundance in 2017. Landline takes place between Labor Day and Halloween in New York City in 1995. Jenny Slate and Abby Quinn play Dana and Allie, two very different sisters who bond and connect over the discovery of their father's affair. And their parents are played by Edie Falco and John Turturro. Dana and Allie come to understand what monogamy and honesty feels like in their own lives. Especially Dana, whose story starts to parallel her dad's with her fiancé, Ben, who's played by Jada Plass. Look, I love Landline, Gillian Robespierre's new film with Jenny Slate. Um, and Edie Falco is in that as well. Um, loved that. It was a lot of fun. Not perfect, but just a really, really nice kind of observation of family dynamics and, um, you know, family love. People have been talking about that for months, at least six months, I think, and so that will definitely make an appearance somewhere. Um, Mm -hmm. I wanted to briefly mention Roxanne, Roxanne, which is not really a biopic, but it's based on the early life of a real person whose name is um, Roxanne Chante. The reason I wanted to bring this up is I didn't think this was a particularly strong film. It starts off really well and then it descends into maybe uh, melodrama or just a little bit. But it's about someone growing up in the Queensbridge Projects who wants to become a rapper and she engages in all these street battles. And I really I thought it was really interesting because you have this film, Roxanne, Roxanne, and then you have Patty Cakes. And I really wanted to see them battle rap each other. That, that, that would be really cool. I feel like they should have both come to um, 
to Sundance. Well, they were both at Sundance, I think, both of the actors, but they should have battle-wrapped each other as a performance art piece at Sundance. That would have been great fun. It's great. There's a lot of really good stuff in it. I just feel like narratively it, it its energy dropped out a little bit. It does star Mahershala Ali as well, which is maybe a, you know, a talking point given his recent nomination. The, the woman who plays her, her name is Shante Adams, and she's just incredible. I mean, she raps super well. She's got this really great presence, screen presence. She plays, I think she first plays a 14-year-old and then she and she uh, goes through to maybe 18 or 20. And you can kind of, you, you get her, it's, I mean, she's got different hairstyles, but you do, she really, I think, embodies the age, the ages very well and very confidently and, and is very convincing in that. So she's, well, she was getting a lot of attention, I think, in, in the response to the film. Great. Okay. Um, and finally, I think, well, I, I want to briefly mention The Hero because it stars Sam Elliott and his incredible moustache. So basically it's about an aging Western film star played by Sam Elliott and his moustache. And I'm just like, I feel like you just need to say that and that's all. And this movie will be sold. It's again, it's not perfect. There are a few cliche moments, but it's beautiful. It's like, there's a lot of sunset and stuff in LA. He lives in the hills and it's got Sam Elliott in his mustache, and so that's that's it. It's a great film. <laughs> it's a good, good film. That film's called The Hero? The Hero, yeah. Nice to meet you. Um, sorry, I forgot your name. Lee. Right. Lee. They say that memory is the second thing to go. And what's the first? I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> How do you two know each other? We were on a TV show together. Nothing you ever heard of. It's called Cattle Drive. Ran for 13 episodes. <gasps> Lee was the lead. Ben Horn, a gunslinger. Whoa. I was a cocky kid who stole the wrong man's horse. <laughs> you mean you had a real job once? Yeah. Had a wife, too. So did he. Now we just have each other. Well. And that was Eloise Ross reporting from New York about her experiences at Sundance. A lot of good films to watch out for there, and hopefully a lot that will be coming soon to MIFF or to wide release. Um, we're going to close up the episode today with a look at what's on movie. Anders, anything that caught your eye? Yeah, so I'm going to give a shout-out to Greg Araki's film Nowhere, uh, which I previously saw for the first time on movie, so they're playing it again. It's a 1997 movie about a queer polyamorous high school couple um, it's lots of fun and also kind of deeply disturbing at the same time. And it ends like in this crazy over the top semi-apocalyptic kind of way. Really, he's not a subtle filmmaker at all, but visually stunning. So many cameos from all these amazing actors of the early to mid nineties. And then a bunch of like 2000 stars sort of as teenagers are in there too. So from that angle, it's really interesting too. Mm-hmm. Totally over the top. And I think it's a true, true icon this film of queer cinema it's a really it's a queer film in yeah, more right. ways than one so I totally recommend it great okay thank you very much so that's um, and that's a part of his Teen Apocalypse trilogy I believe yes excellent okay well um, movie is um, at the moment on a Jean-Luc Godard season which has been uh, 
certainly delivering a lot of goods. Um, so I would single out, I mean, there's a lot of places, you can't really go wrong too, too far wrong with Sean Luc Godard, but I would probably single out Weekend as being a good place to start if you're unfamiliar with his work. That's got such a fabulous opening Yeah, scene. the opening sequence itself. Yep. I mean, if you, even if you're unsure about French New Wave, watch, just give the first 10 minutes of Weekend a try and I think you won't want to look back. Um, and that brings us to the end of episode 18 of Cultural Capital. Thank you very much for sticking with us. Uh, and where can people find you online? They can... F- well, I just deactivated Twitter, so this is awkward. Um, really? Yes. Uh, so, they okay. can't find me anywhere. Right. <laughs> but if you're interested in trying out Mubi, you can get a 30-day free trial on us. Just go to Mubi, M-U-B-I dot com slash cultural capital. So you can find us on Twitter at the Cold Cap Pod, or you can email us on culturalcapitalpodcast at gmail.com. And on Twitter, where can we find you, Andy? I'm an Andy Ricky. That's R-I-C-K-I-E. Hi. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, I was so pleased. I did not realise. <laughs> <laughs>